Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Terms show, Nick and I sit down to discuss everything I love to talk about, so this is definitely a selfish episode, because this is all about the economy. What is going on with interest rates in this country? What is happening with debt in this country and around the world? What is going on with housing in this country? What about the supply and the demand driving the housing market? What are the metrics around those that we're looking at? What are these trends and where are these trends going? And things like M2, absolute love chatting, absolutely love chatting about this stuff. That's what I meant to say. Not absolute, absolutely love chatting about this stuff. And on this episode, we selfishly get to do that. So it's Nick and I, we recorded this a few days ago now. Nick is actually in Croatia. He's been sending me pictures from the beach that we go to, one of my favorite patios in the world he's already on. So I am a jealous brother over here, but we're going to be joining him shortly. And I can't wait. I'm not going to lie. I cannot wait to be there. Um, and if you are listening to this, and you want to do some real estate investing yourself or hang out with a group of real estate investors who are doing this right here in the Golden Horseshoe, you can check out the Rockstar Inner Circle membership by visiting rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. And there you can read all about what we're doing, why and how we are working with thousands of real estate investors in this area. All the benefits of coming of becoming a, a Rockstar Inner Circle member are listed for you there as well. And if you use the code, the top secret code of YLYT, you will get a discount to join the membership. That's Y-L-Y-T. And if you have any trouble with that, you can always email members at rockstarbrokerage.com to get in touch with the membership team here. That's members at rockstarbrokerage.com. That's it for the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are live with Nick Carazza and Tom Carazza. I'm Tom, that's Nick. Anyway, you're, Nick's about to leave to Croatia, so he's already in vacation mode, and I'm still a week and a half away from leaving, so I'm still not quite, in, I'm getting excited, but I'm not in vacation mode. I'm, I'm far from vacation mode. I'm trying to flip and get the, get the heck out of here. I'm just trying to get to the point where we, I can leave. There's a bunch of things outstanding between... Uh, well, because you have a renovation going on at your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then everything and, here. We, we have a renovation on uh, the... Uh, there's two other properties that are being renovated right now. Those are both tail end, but there's two other properties. So in, in total, there's three going on. But when you're on Saturday or Sunday, you could be sitting on the beach having a drink and I'm going to be here. Think about it. It's beautiful. Yeah. I haven't checked the weather. Uh, I've checked the weather. Is it getting? It's Yeah, well, it's thir uh, high 20s, low 30s and sunny every okay. day for the foreseeable future, yeah. the typical right. stuff. So. Remember that one summer when it was like 45 degrees and we were out on the islands and even the locals on the islands, we, it was the first year we rented a boat and the locals on the, on day two, we were getting back on the boat and the locals were like, Hey, be careful out there. Like it's hot and the stone, the white stones were like reflecting hot, yeah. heat. And we went out there and the, the breeze from the boat kind of kept you a little bit cool, but it was almost like you were sizzling like bacon on yeah. the front of that boat. I think it'll be hot. You know, it's always a few degrees warmer than what the, the, the kind of weather network here says like it is over there or at least where, where the, the our places so yeah it's it, it looks it's looked like it's going to be hot which i have no complaints about 
Okay, so let's dive into this. Um, the, I guess where I want to start is Globe and Mail had that article, I think, a few days ago. So depending on when you're listening to this, sometime in June, the Globe and Mail puts out an article saying there's a corporation here in Canada that is raising funds and they are buying hundreds of rental properties in all the areas that... Um, Thousands. Thousand. I think it's it was hundreds, four or five hundred. Now maybe they're going. Oh, in the thousands. next five. I just looked at it. in the next in the next five years they want to own. I think it's seven or eight thousand. Thousand worth about a billion dollars is what their their goal is. And it's funny because um, someone on our team was in contact with them like two years ago or so when they were starting to look at this, and it's also interesting that they're looking at all the same cities that we've been talking about forever which is all the outskirt communities around the gta they're trying to buy single family homes turn them into duplexes generate cash flow from from them yeah for you're you're right 400 is the, the initial initial the thing, initial that thing. Was yep. and i and i th i see a lot of people online debating hey how do we feel it was bad enough when individual investors were quote unquote competing against homeowners to buy properties now we have corporations buying properties and some of the discussion around that is should this be allowed should we have corporations buying it and to me when we focus our discussion on that we're missing the bigger problem the bigger problem is that the economy has been distorted with interest rates that have been pressed so low that it's forcing people to chase yield which is forming corporations that raise money to buy single family homes because if we had an honest market where the returns and interest rates were free market rates, they wouldn't be so low that big corporations or people raising money in a group like this were buying hundreds of homes in Canada. By the way, this has happened in the US for like six or seven years. Remember, we, I think it was BlackRock or something owns a couple of big funds that are buying properties. But to me, this is a symptom of a bigger problem. So when I see the debate online that revolves around is this good or bad or right or should it be allowed? I'm like, we're missing the big picture here. The big picture is why is this happening? And it's because the economy has an interest rate that has been artificially depressed too low. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everyone just focuses on the, so I should say everyone, a lot of people focus on the immediate thing, saying, well, if we don't allow that to happen, then everything's going to still be okay. But it's not because the problem's gotten progressively worse. And if you don't fix the underlying problem, like to what you're saying, it will continue to get progressively worse whether or not this company goes out and buys, what did I say, 400 homes? Like if you look at the grand scheme of things that the 400 homes, uh, if you're saying all across, it's like it's, it's further than Golden Horseshoe because one of their um, uh, one of their, their places they're looking to buy is London, which, you know, could be considered Golden Horseshoe. We, yeah, kinda, we always we, roll we it do, in, but, but it's not quite. But Kingston's yeah. not. Yeah. Right, Kingston, Peterborough, kind of yes and no. But so there's there's areas out there. So it's, it's really a, a small fraction of things. But there is like you've been saying this for a while that the point in time will come where people that own investors, if you own more than one property, ultimately people people will look at you like you're part of the problem. Like you shouldn't have that. You're not allowed to discounting how much work and effort and all that that thing is. But yeah, it, it's it's not. It's the underlying root causes that need to be addressed that no one is addressing. And it's still what surprises me is that everyone will still react to these headlines instead of looking deeper and going to the underlying cause. And I don't know why, like, I don't know why it's not discussed more. Maybe, maybe it doesn't get enough clicks or something like this headline obviously got a ton of clicks, at least in our world, because it went around, we got it sent to Our us whole by, office, our whole team got it. Yeah, Everybody and from how it. many people, like how many different members sent it to us, like it was, it, I must have seen it 20 times yesterday, right? So 
Um, anyways, it's uh, it, yeah. I just I, I don't know because the the real problem is supply based on the population growth we're having. The supply that we're creating is is not enough. That's that's the real problem. And then to to amplify the problem, low interest rates, easy money policies. Then that just takes the problem to the whole new level. That's what forces that's not what forces the prices to skyrocket in the rate which they have. That's what it is because the normal supply and demand would cause prices to continue to increase because of that. But then when you throw that fuel on the fire, it just totally messes everything up. And that's the real problem. That's, that's really what it is. And when you break out the factors, I think some of the things that we will discuss often is that, are that all of these factors are influencing the market. And those factors are we have low interest rates forever. We have massive population growth that until in the last 18 months, Nick, was like hardly discussed. Yeah. We have and no... Can, sorry, go ahead. We have no supply. We have increasing debt. So interest rates are low, but we are further increasing our debt and deficits. And on top of the, the population growth that we're getting through immigration, we have millennials buying. So I just want to go through some of the, these points. So millennials are now Here's, entering the Hold on one market. second before you get to the millennials. Here's the thing with the population growth, because some people say, well, well they're like... Hold on, the population growth numbers are not strong now. And they're right. The population growth numbers are not strong because of COVID. And even if the government doesn't hit their 400,000 person mark that they, they're trying to this year because of these, their, their border restrictions that are ongoing forever, I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe you know, they'll, they'll start opening them up a little bit more in 2025 or something. We'll see. But when, so they were at one point earlier this year ahead of their target. I didn't even catch your little joke there until 2025. They, they were at <laughs> one point ahead of their target, but, but uh, this year, but maybe they won't be. But we've had such, um, uh, we've had population growth far outstrip supply for so long, and we've discussed those numbers before, that that's why that it didn't, we didn't need population growth last year or even this year. And we could have zero new demand, zero new demand, and still continue with the supply and still not get back to where, where we need to do, where we need to be to have the more balanced market. So this is this is where I'm coming from. Like, yeah, everyone's just focused on like, well, last year we didn't have the population growth. It, was, it wasn't like a huge number. I'm like, okay, I get it. You're right. But over the last decade, we've had such a deficiency. That's what's still driving things. Now, if the population growth never comes back, then maybe that they're right. Like that will fix. That's one factor that it will fix. But all signs point to it coming back. And, and just to talk, put some numbers around some of the things that you're discussing there. There's this data that I think the Bank of Nova Scotia released and then Ben Rabideau, we talked to him a little bit about this as well. I just want to kind of repeat it, that if you look at the history of the population growth in this country, it's absolutely stunning when you compare it to single family home completion. So in the 1970s, the entire decade, we grew in population about 3 million people as a country, right? I think I'm reading that correctly. Yes. And then 1980s, 3 million. And then in the 1990s, about 3 million. Then in the 2000s, our population peaked up a little bit. And it was, you know, looks like 3,200 if I, if I ballpark, uh, uh, ballpark it, sorry, not 3,000, 3 million. So in the 1970s, 3 million. In the 1980s, 3 million people. In the 1990s, 3 million people. In the 2000s, 3 million 200,000, so 3.2. And then in the 2010, so the last decade, we grew 4 million people. That is a, like a 33% increase over the typical population growth over a decade. And that's interesting in and of itself. But then when you map it against single family home completions, single family home completions were the lowest they've been in 50 years. 
So we had population growth over the last 10 years, 33% greater than any other decade. And in that same decade, we had less single family homes completed than any of the other four decades before it. Yeah, so we used to, if you look at a single number to look look at, it, 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 the average is we were having about just under 0.6 homes um, completed relative to the change in population, you know, for every pop person in population we grew with. We grew. And then in the, the last decade... Which almost sounds about right, 0.6, when you yeah, go f- look at family households. 100%. And then, but the last decade or so, it dropped, this is from the Scotiabank report, um, it dropped to 0.4. So the long-term average from 84 until, I don't know what that is, at 2019, 18, 19, 20, it's, it's dropped, it dropped to 0.4 then. So the long-term average for 30 years has now been cut almost in half. So we had a three, 33% increase in population and a 33% decrease in single-family homes. It's in some ways, I mean, you, these are rough yeah, numbers. You can pick right? apart the numbers, There's, but it's the best numbers, numbers we've ever seen. Yeah, it's the best data we've seen. But we've had a, a, a clear increase in population growth, a clear decrease in single-family housing. So and, like clear. One and then way, lower interest rates over a decade yeah. than we've ever had before. Yeah, yeah. yeah like it... it the, the, that's why, like the government, I th- I think the reason the government hasn't responded and done something, and you'd think they have to because of the, the the election, but if they're not smart enough to figure out this is what was going to happen or or this is what's causing it, then we have a bigger problem than just the housing. Nick, like, I we think we can all, assume they're not smart enough. No, like that, it, I was just texting with uh, with one of both of our friends, and he was texting me saying, "Hey, you know what? I, like, what's going on in Canada? Like, are we?" are we just kind of kind of like perpetually screwed here? Like, are we ever going to correct some of these problems? It really does seem like there's a divide between the wealthy and the non-wealthy, between the rich and the poor and the destruction of the middle yeah. class. And it made us question, who is running the country? Like when somebody increases the population growth targets, the way Canada has increased the population growth targets, who communicates that to the municipalities and says, hey, you know what? maybe you should look at the number of homes that you're allowing to be built, condos and homes in the area, because we just kind of cranked our immigration targets, which is going to increase your population more than your historical yeah, but norms. they don't talk to each other. We know that. Doesn't that seem like an obvious thing? Hey, we're letting more people into the country. Why don't you maybe consider allowing more homes to be built in your area? And, and I know there's like the Ontario government's come out with like, den, you know, dense, uh, I was going to say densification plans to increase density in different areas. And I know Oakville specifically has been um, under the Places to Grow, Grow Act in Ontario, kind of pressured to say, hey, you need more higher dense, density, higher yeah. dense areas in the city. So there is some of that going on, but it doesn't seem like nearly enough. And then if we look forward you know that Ryerson report that we found from two months ago where basically the report was saying it's demographics that are really not being taken into account in this country and not just immigration because they pulled in the millennials who are forming households as well and they forecasted the next 10 years of uh, family for, uh, formation growth. Look, it's stunning. And, and if you're listening to this, just so you know, it looks like we had just over 50,000 household formations per year over the last five the greater, years. What, what, what this report's defining is the greater golden horseshoe. Yeah, and the, sorry, in the greater golden horseshoe, yeah. Um, so that was 50,000 a year over the last five years. And they're forecasting over the next 10, now this is a per year number I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share, about 70,000 a year. Which if it hits would be, again, what, what is that? That's a 40, almost 40% a f- increase, it's yeah. just slightly less. Yeah, so we're talking about a 40% increase over what we have now. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I know. Like, I mean, where are we? <laughs> where are we time, headed? When we did when the, when the last time we did the um, the um, the local market update for for members in May when we did that, it was the first time that I was I I, I, I kind of was very much more direct with it because I was like, look, this is it, it, it's all laid out for us. Here's the risk factors, but here's the trends, and unless these trends change in some way. It, it, like there's actually potential that it gets crazier. Now, here's the thing. There is a glass ceiling to it because of affordability and stuff. And we can get into that after because I know we've spoken about sure, it. Sure, we can talk about it. there are things they can do around that too, right? And I just want to read a couple sentences from this report because it's kind of stunning. It looks like Hemson did the report that Ryerson's referring to. So you'll hear this um, Hemson name. It says, Hemson did forecast that millennials would live at home longer with mom and dad than past generations, but that pent up demand would start to be unleashed between 2021 and 2031, contributing to large increase in the number of new households across the GTA. In addition, those already on their own would move from renting apartments to wanting ground-related housing as they start to build families. And this is exactly what we're starting to see in the brokerage here. They expect that 70,000 new households would be created per year over the next decade in the greater Golden Horseshoe, up strongly from 46,000 per year between 2011 and 2016 and 54,000 per year in the last five-year period. The Hempson forecast also called for a shift in household demand into areas outside of Toronto and into other regions of the greater Golden Horseshoe. The share of new households opting for the city of Toronto would fall to 20% between 2021 and 2031 from 30% in the prior decade. While underlying demographic demand was evenly split between apartments and ground-related housing in the last decade, Hemson expects demand for ground-related housing to be almost double that for apartments. All of that is just stunning. Like, all of that's just ridiculous. <laughs> and I don't mean ridiculous in a bad way. I just mean it's just ridiculous when you see it so plainly laid out. Yeah. And then, and the, so, and, and that's all fine. The, the, where the challenge comes in is because supply is not coming on the market. So if they start bringing supply on the market, then then that can absorb it. But but if we have no increase in supply, or if we have a minor increase in supply, it can't keep up with the demand. And what we're seeing now, the numbers are, especially for ground related. So if we're looking at single family, um, in almost all areas of Canada, the single family numbers are at you know at or close to all time lows for completions, whereas the the condos and the high rise numbers are are creeping upwards to take the place of those units so you know that it's why we looked at um what i don't know i forget someone told us or we said this we're like um is the single it might have been andrew on the team i don't know if he, he mentioned that but he was like you know is the single family lot like is this the land grab you know and the example he used and i, I remember as well growing up in mississauga there were some people that had um their parents had bought land someplace like you know, what seemed far to me in that world when I was in grade 10, I, they probably bought it in Milton. And I was like, oh, that's, where's Milton? I, you know, I didn't know, east side of Mississauga, you don't even know. But, um, and uh, they held on to that land and they were able to sell it for a decent profit. And people are looking, you know, is, is the single family lot the new land grab because you can buy this single family home. Like you started out with talking about, um, as core development group that's buying all these single family properties, putting in second suites. You can buy a single family lot, you can put a second suite in it, but then beyond that, more and more municipalities are looking at allowing you to put a third suite there in the form of a coach house or um, laneway housing and that type of stuff. And it's like, is this is this the new development law? Like, I, I don't know, you know, but but there's something to be said for it until these things get back in line, you know, and when, if, how, I, I don't know what it's, what it's going to be. 
another one of the, the the headlines that we were kind of chuckling at is that somewhere I can't remember if it was the star or which newspaper reported it, but it was basically kind of insinuating that oh Canada's not really going to hit its immigration targets and it's only going to hit like a percentage of the amount of immigrants that are coming into Canada. And it, it kind of was implying that this was like a, you know, a negative thing and it would, you know, not create demand for housing. They didn't really come out and say, but that was like the message of the article, like, oh, Canada's not going to hit its new targets. So just for perspective, which really wasn't shared in that kind of article and is likely ne often never shared, is that the target for immigration for this year was 401,000. That's the largest target for new immigrants in Canada that Nick and I have ever seen. We've never seen the number 401. Previous targets only seven, eight years ago were like 250,000, 260,000. Which it all got blown out of the water. Which all got blown out of the water. But then it went to like 300,000. Then we blew those out of the water. Then we came up with this 401,000 target. And some people are now projecting that we're quote unquote only going to get this year like 270. 270,000 only like six years ago is like a banner year for new immigrants in this country. Now it's being reported without context that it's not quite meeting our immigration targets and it's somehow a negative. Meanwhile, that's still a massive amount of new immigrants coming into this country. And when Canada is putting out targets for 2022, that's 411,000. Their 2023 official target is 421,000. I don't think Canada's going to turn down the dial here. If anything, they'll double down next year trying to change the criteria to allow more immigration into this country. They've clearly committed to it. So this is something that like if this year, because of everything going on with COVID, we don't hit the number, I don't really think this is something that we're going to constantly miss because we have a history recently of overachieving on these numbers, not underachieving. Yeah, and Canada is still a very desirable place to come for, from an immigration standpoint. There's people all over the world that would you know gladly come to Canada and try to kind of give themselves some opportunity here. So that, that, you know, that hasn't changed either. Even with the higher cost of housing, there's still strong demand to come here. And then there's something else that's, you know, often kind of discussed, but you, you don't really hear it all the time. It's just the amount of money that we are printing as a result of the deficits that we run is just astronomical. So for context, before COVID hit, we were going to run like a $30 billion deficit. And then COVID hit and we run like, uh, we ran a, like a $300 billion deficit. We did it like 10 times. And now this year we're forecasted to do like 120 billion or something, but that also does not include 20 billion that's already been committed. So we have now a $100 billion deficit in this country. It's just something that's like reported as normal. It doesn't even freak anybody out. When 30 billion two years ago was kind of like a high a high budget deficit in this country. And if you look over the last, you know, Nick, what does this chart say here? Is this 1990? 98. 98. So in 98, that's when I think Paul Martin kind of, and Jean Chrétien were kind of balancing the budget. And we actually had a surplus. So we ran like a, a budget balance and surplus. For 10 years, about 10 for years. For 10 years, until about 2003. Uh, oh, actually longer, 2006. And then we dipped down and we started running deficits. That was the financial crisis in 08. Yeah, right? in 08, when, in 08. Yeah. yeah, we ran a big one in 08. And by a big one, I mean 09. about 20% of what we're running now. <laughs> yeah, 09, sorry, 09. Yeah, started in 08, but then yeah. that, that happened, and yeah. then and then so then 09 was the response. And then so look, slowly... 09, look at the number. That's about 60 billion. 
So we ran a pretty big one, not a pretty big one, an absolutely massive one of 60 billion. And then it got smaller and smaller over the next few years. It went to like, you know, it looks like what, 40, 30, 20 over the next few years. I like how the, the, on this particular chart, so I guess they're trying to make a point. Um, they put a line in there right when they start, because then it balanced. And then they put a line in there that says Trudeau elected. And then ever since, then they just, it keeps growing. It yeah. keeps growing in the negative. Yeah. Yeah. So, And then last year, you see the massive number where we're into the hundreds of billions. So when you see that kind of perspective, and now this year, we're going to run another hundred billion plus, who knows where we're going to land? I bet we land at like 200 billion when all, all of a sudden done. Who knows? When you see all that, I think all of us can kind of shrug a little bit and be like, oh, well, whatever. It doesn't really affect me on the day to day. But I think, I think where it does affect, were you going to say something? Well, yeah, because... What's funny, because I'm, I'm looking at one of the headlines that I had here, um, and it was last year. So I'm gonna, I'll give CMHC the benefit of the doubt last year when, when things hit and they, they were calling for these this market correction, right? The 18% drop or whatever, which made headlines everywhere. And I'm like, and, I, you know, I when we were talking, I was like, it's just, it's irresponsible for them to come out and say that at that time. Because they have no idea what, how bad this virus is, what the economic response is going to be. Like, they have zero clue. This was like two weeks after. I think I have the date. Um, I don't know if this was the very first time they mentioned it or not, but it was, it was, I have this one as, as, as in May. So it was, it was about a month and a half, let's say after this all started. So still they have no, no real true idea of, of what's happening there. And then, but then they doubled down in September. So like by that time they could see all the spending. They could see the the low interest rates. They could see this debt being formed. They could see all the money being pushed into the system, but they doubled down. And on September, they came. They stood by their forecast for the sharp price drop. And I'm like, is there? What are they trying to do here? Because like, there's got to be something else. Because by that time, there was enough data. You'd think in that position to truly understand and see what was happening. You could already see people moving out of the cities into these other areas. The demand for single-family homes were skyrocketing. There was so much cheap money in the system. the The direct government response at that time, there was from this CIBC numbers, there was twenty billion in lost wages, um, and 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 but then it, overall there was almost a hundred. Uh, it was eighty five. Uh, sorry, um, eighty two billion. I believe it's about 80 billion added in employment insurance, uh, government transfers like CERBA and CRA and other net income. So this, the overall net income grew substantially and they could see this. This is from April to September of 2019 versus 2020. So 2020, the incomes were growing. They would have access to this data. They would have access to this data and all this stuff, but yet they're coming out and saying, nope, these prices are of these financial investments are going to drop by 18% when everything was lining up and it's their policy that's lining up saying that it's going to when i say they i don't mean CMC in particular but the government in general and it's their their policy that's lining up to try to push these things up it, it was just it was a weird thing for me i'm like i just where are they coming from because there's got to be an ulterior motive I, I, I keep thinking they're smart uh, giving them the benefit of that they're smarter you say no but they got to be no they're not they're, they're it, it's just such a simplistic analysis it's it's almost like when they come out with those forecasts they just look around and go oh my gosh we're closing the economy. Prices are going to come down. Let me put my finger to the wind here. I say they're going to come down 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever number they're going to pick. Because if we actually put out a YouTube video right around that time, Nick, and we got ripped for it because we were sharing this type of data. We're like, hey, wait a second here. We don't think... Remember, Nick, this was right when... Did you? I didn't read the comments. I know because you put that Well, the video comments out. ripped us. Oh, really? Yeah, we put out... We put Typical out, realtors saying prices are going up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we said, hey, listen, there's a population growth. There's no supply. 
And because of the, and interest rates are super low and because people are still getting money and really the economic impact hasn't felt yet. Like businesses haven't closed down there because of COVID no, last uh, very month. Th- the amount of rent payments being missed we're, we're, we saw were tiny. So we thought everything that we are seeing is suggesting that because of the depend up demand over the last decade for real estate, the prices are not going to fall unless banks stop lending. And banks didn't stop lending. Because the and government was putting money into the system so they could lend more. Yeah, exactly. So, And when we said we think, if anything, prices will kind of just stay flat or maybe creep up, people in the comments just started ripping us saying, oh, just a typical realtor mm. saying prices are going to go up, real estate's the best, you know, yeah, real estate always goes up. And we're like, no, no, you don't know our history. You don't know what we're talking about. We never believe that. We're just looking at what monetary policy is doing in this country, what population trends are doing, what supply trends are doing, and what will be a result of the real estate activity because of all this. And that's kind of what happened. And then it started shooting up. Well, the responses were so big this time because before we were talking about it, we're like, okay, this is what it looks like. But then the numbers were so clear because the responses to certain things were so large because the pandemic kind of amplified those things. Then it just, it crystallized the equation and it just made it seem like okay look if this is happening like it's very clear this is what's going to happen i i didn't see this 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 other scene which she had i i guess i forgot from from a year later so the first year they said the, the prices were going down 18 percent in 2020 2021 in may they said canadian home prices could climb 14 percent in pandemic second year so if i look if i'm an investor i'm sure i i, I now i think they're going to fall you know what I mean? They said 14%. I'm like, they're going to go down 10% for sure. You know what? I, when, when CMHC put that out there, some people sold their homes apparently. I don't know firsthand. No, the, the first one, ha- not this one. Not the, the first, first Yeah, one. the first yeah, one last yeah, yeah. year. Sold their homes apparently because they thought the market was going to collapse and then their real estate market went on fire over the last year and now they can't buy us an equivalent home back and these people are kind of left on the sidelines and that's what happens when you give up assets in a world that is devaluing the dollar and making scarce things like real estate, art, gold, Bitcoin, all the scarcer things go up in value mm-hmm. because the dollars are being devalued. And timing the market is is a tough thing. Like, I mean, this is in every asset class and people will do it and get lucky, like they will. But any long-term investor, it doesn't matter if you're stocks or real estate or commodities or anything, bonds, timing the market, you know, and trying to call the top or bottom, that is, man, you're talking about getting lucky. Like any long-term investor in any asset class will say they, they don't time the market, but they they park money for a period of time. And then when they feel it's right, they, they get it out. It's, it's It goes back to, you know, what we heard years ago. I don't know if it was from Rob or someone else or read it someplace, but it's time in the market versus timing the market. And the time in the market is what matters. That's where all the money's made. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's come up with your thesis. And if you think starter homes in an area that's growing with population has less supply is going to be something good for you, commit to it and stick with your idea. Um, and, and, and then I think the discussion has been recently well, I don't know if this can continue and what's going to happen. Prices look super high now. So here's just a little thought experiment to throw out there for you to decide whether you think real estate prices or think, you know, harder assets are going to go up in dollar price or not. Global debt to GDP is four to one. Nick, this is Greg Foss's explanation that I just kind of love. Global debt to GDP is about a four to one ratio. Now I'm rounding here. A lot of people say it's like 350 or 370 or whatever. So yes, I am kind of rounding up to four to make it simple. So four to one, that debt has a cost to it. And it's the interest payments on the cost, it is the cost, sorry. So if the interest is growing that debt 
at 3% a year, just saying the payments on the debt are 3%. The interest is kind of growing that at 3% a year. So if the debt's growing at 3%, then the GDP to keep the same ratio of four to one must grow at 12%. Because if you have a four to one ratio and the four is growing at 3%, the one has to grow at 12%, which means the global economy must grow at 12% annually to keep that same ratio in place. And that's not going to happen. We're not going to get GDP. Maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe there's going to be a digital someone revolution. Said, I remember someone saying that math was wrong. What is it? Sorry, explain that to me again. 4%, 4 over 1. Yeah, four so like if, you, if, if the four, if 4 grows at 3%, the 1 must grow at 12%. So if you multiply 4 times 1.03 for, for, the, for the 1 to have the same difference you of 4. You by 1.12. Exactly. This is simple math. Yeah. So like... Well, I shouldn't say it's simple math, but it's just math. It's simple calculator math. It's simple calculator math. Multiply the top by 1.03. And what do you get? Are you doing it now? Yeah, 4.12. 4.12. So you have to multiply 1 by 1.12, or 12% growth, to keep the ratio the same. That 4 difference. That's all. That's it. And the GDP is not going to grow at 12%. Which means to me, the spread between debt and the economy is going to grow larger and larger. And if the debt is growing and the spread is growing between the debt and the GDP at a larger and larger rate, they're just going to have to pile in more and more debt to try to keep this thing going. And the only way, I think what was stunning to us was the only way that we see this working where they can get this growth is kind of artificial growth by growing the money supply. And that's where in Canada, we saw the money supply or M2, our money supply, the amount of dollars in circulation in this country, grew at 20% last year. They stuffed 20% newly minted currency into our economy at a rate of 20%. And that's how all of these things are going to go up in dollar value. They're just going to depreciate the value of the dollar by stuffing more and more dollars into the system. And last year, they did it at a rate of 20% growth. Mm. And it was and, across, it was all over the place. Yeah, so I, I just want to repeat these. This is something we shared with Rockstar members a while ago, that in the United Kingdom, they, they grew their money supply by 16% over the last year. In Japan, 17%. In Europe, 14%. In the United States, 25%. 25% of all the currency ever in existence in the U.S. got put into circulation in the last 12 months. India, 20%. Brazil, 30%. Mexico, 14%. Thailand, 13%. Russia, 20%. China, 12.5%. And that's why this is like a global thing. And then that's, if you, that's the... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, if you take the G4 central banks, the G4 central banks are Bank of Japan... Federal Reserve in the U.S., the U.K., um, Bank of England, Bank of, is, Bank of England. No, th- thank yeah. you, Bank of England. So those are the four big ones. They, no, you said U.K., which is the Bank of England. Oh, so Europe, uh, Europe, U.K., Japan, oh, the, the, and the, the U.S. The European Central Bank. Yeah, those are the big four, and they grew their balance sheets or the amount of you know assets that they were stuffing into the market. However, you want to define their balance sheet, however it makes sense to you. But they basically grew at 15.5% compounded annually, or 600% since 2008. So 
central banks are growing the amount of currency that's going into the system. And some people argue, well, it doesn't get to everyday person. It's stuck in reserves. But the bottom line is they're growing the currency supply at 15.5% compounded annually. I look at this in another way. I look at this, my dollar is being depreciated by this amount annually. So that if I don't get a return that's greater than 15.5% a year, I'm falling behind. You actually need to earn more than 15.5% a year or globally you're falling behind. Yeah, well, and if you look at what's happened to a number of financial assets and their returns since this trend started. So you were saying 2008. If you look at what's happened then, so you take the bottom of the market and, and maybe it's convenient that it's the bottom because there was a crash, whatever. And, but if you take that and you look at the average the, the, the average return on those investments or the average increase in value, I mean, that's the only place you can go get that return. But what's interesting is in the past when these types of things happened, it was much more common for it to be like a single country that was doing it and devaluing Yeah, because it was the currency wars that Jay Rickards was yeah. talking about. Like one country would do it, another country would do it. So, now, everybody's so doing it. So people would run from it and it would impact that country. But then it's like when everyone's doing it and you're seeing this, that's why you're seeing the same trends across asset classes in multiple different countries. Like if you look at real estate, the, the real estate price thing that we've been talking about in Canada and where prices are, that's not a Canadian thing. Like the real estate prices are, are up in many developed nations all across the world. I don't mean up like 2%. They're like up substantially. You just shared that map of the U.S. Yeah. Where in every state they're up like up. 14%, 15%. But that's what I mean. There, but it's, it, it goes beyond that. It goes into Europe. It goes into these other, these other areas. This is just, and it's this, it's this exact thing that's happening. Because how else could all like just real estate across the world and all these different parts of the world just all of a sudden there's so much more demand that it's outstripping the supply. Of the, the world's population just magically grew in the yeah. last year and everybody needs more real estate across the world evenly. It doesn't make sense, but this makes a lot more sense. It's, it's kind of a sneaky form of theft because it's devaluation everywhere at the same time. So you're like, wait, what's going on? Everything just went up in price, but it's not that everything went up in price. It's that the dollar value in your pocket, the dollars in your pocket went down in value. And I think the, the, the best way we illustrated that, or we were trying to illustrate it, is that by chance, the Toronto Real Estate Board, if you took March 2020 to March 2021, the average price, and I know that's averages and it you know encompasses everything and people can argue that's- Yeah, but it makes the story good for it, our purposes it, today. It really just serves our needs right now is that the average price on the TREB market, Toronto Real Estate Board or the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, whatever it's called these days, it went up 21% year over year from March 2020 to March 2021. And our currency supply in this country went up like 19.9%. So isn't that rather convenient <laughs> that the average price across Canada went up 20% when at the same time we increased the amount of currency going into circulation by about 20%? Nothing changed with the real estate. Nothing changed. It's that the value of the dollar in your pocket decreased, so it cost you 20% more to get the same damn piece of real estate. It's like such a ripoff. But everybody looks at it and it's reported like, oh, real estate prices are going up. It's why the real estate media in this country drives me absolutely bonkers. Because they constantly say, I don't get it. Why are real estate prices going up? This is not fair. Yeah, it's not fair. But it's not that real estate prices are going up. Point to Ottawa and the Bank of Canada. And it's that our money is being manip manipulated to such an extent. Manipulated. Manipulated. <laughs> that the prices, that it just cost more dollars. And it's kind of sneaky because I think this is like an example that I really like because it, this is the way it's sneaky to me. 
if real estate was 5% of the whole economy measured in dollars, right? You count up all the dollars in the system and you're like, the, 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 the whole economy represents 100 and the real estate activity and you know, value of all the real estate in the country was five. And it's much more than that as a percentage of our country, but I'm just using it for simple math. But then if the economy is doubled because you've doubled the amount of currency in circulation, which means you have to count double the amount of dollars. And at this rate, let, let, let's just pretend that the 20% year over year went for another four years. So that means from last year to another four years, it's 20% a year. It would take um, five years for it to double. Actually, slightly less because it compounds. But sure. It's five years for it to double. Five years in, for it In to, theory. Yeah, five years for it to double. Well, then real estate prices... If they stayed, if they doubled in the same time, people would say, oh my gosh, well, real estate prices have doubled over the last five years. But if you took the real estate value and measured it against the size of the new currency base that had increased 20% a year, the value of all the real estate would be exactly the same as a ratio against the amount of currency. And that's where it's a complete scam. Yeah. And the way they've been able to make, because then, then the question is, well how can people keep affording it? But we've seen how they can keep affording it because we've seen what they've been doing over the last 10 years. And while they've been printing all this money, they lower interest rates because it helps their debt levels and the interest paid on their debt. And it allows people to then further qualify for the carrying costs of properties. Because again, in our society, most people don't care about the actual price they pay for something. They care about the monthly payment. So if you're going to pay 500000 for a property or a million, but it's the same payment over a 25-year period because the interest rates are, are different. In that case, they would have to be drastically different. But because of different interest rates, no one cares that they pay a million bucks. They care that they're paying whatever that number is every month for the next 25 years. It's the same as the other one. And you can't fault anyone right. for that. You're just trying to live somewhere yeah. for your family. Yeah, I shouldn't say no one cares. People obviously care. But at the end of the day, they're like, oh, I can afford it because here's my monthly payment. And that's what we're focused on is a monthly payment, like you said, for your family. You want a roof over their head? You want to go to the grocery store and buy them food? That's it. Just, just hearing this is making me pissed off. <laughs> anyway, we need a vacation. No, but it yeah. seems like it. The thing is, when you speak, in my opinion, when you speak to it like this and when it's broken down this way, it becomes very clear. You're like, oh, I think I have an understanding of how this is working now. Because, because when other people look at the markets, a lot of the conversations that are had, they're like, well, it doesn't make sense. Like the prices don't make sense. They can't keep going up. Nick. Yeah, they can't. And, well, and I agree with them. I'm like, you are 100% right. It makes zero sense. But. If you look at it a different way, maybe it does. Maybe it does make sense. But if you look at it just from like, well, prices are like at this high. Yeah, it's a rip off. Yeah. It's a rip off. We agree. Yeah. These prices are crazy. Yeah. But if you look at it this way, you're like, wow, it, this is how they got there. Because now it's very clear how they got there. We have the ten, the last decades worth of data that has put them in this place and where where everything kind of was amplified and sped up. They put them here. Is there's a chance that it keeps going unless something changes? Right. And, and even as affordability, so rates got cut last year. They put all this money in the system. So lending would keep going. So prices were able to jump. And I, I forget, we did the math when we said the price, the Bank of Canada price cut, I think it was about 92,000 if I remember. But just the same, the, the, a person with the same income qualifying for a mortgage, when they did the initial rate cut last spring, so that would be spring 20, uh, 2020, they, um, the average, the, the person kind of qualifying for a mortgage, I think I took a $500,000 mortgage. I, 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 forget, I think it but, was 500000 you took. But they could qualify for about 90-something thousand more. So I was like, yeah, how is it a surprise then that prices were going to jump up when you drop the, the, the carrying cost that much? It should be no surprise at all. So 
if they do the same thing again, I know rates are super low, but if the same thing, if they continue to spend and they have to drop rates again to spur the economy, if that happens, what's the likelihood that the prices can move again? Well, I think it's really strong. And then, and then it, from a political standpoint, if people start getting ticked off and they're like, well, Trudeau or Ford or whoever, you know, what, the Kenny or whoever, wherever they're living, whoever they want to talk to, and they're like, well, I'm pissed off because I can't buy a house. And you guys, this is terrible. And the housing market's screwed. And then someone runs on a platform saying, you know what, we're going to make housing more affordable. Well, the first thing that they're going to do, they're not going to start cutting prices. They're not going to be like, well, we're just going to take all the prices of a million bucks and make them worth 500000 That's not going to work. So what are they going to do? They're going to make the monthly payment feasible for people. And the way they're going to do that is by increasing amortizations or changing the structure of the mortgage, like they have in other countries. If right? this comes true, we're going to freak out. But I'm telling you, yeah. but, but, it, but it, like all we're doing is looking at what's happened elsewhere. Canada's behind. It, it's almost like it happens in Europe first. Then a lot of those trends kind of spill over into the U.S. And then the trends just kind of spill over into Canada afterwards. And we're seeing it. Like in, I can in, see a political platform like that. Like, you know what? We have to make it easier for first-time homebuyers. Yeah. So we'll just extend the amount of time you have to pay the debt back <laughs> so, in, so that you can take on more debt to be yeah. able to buy something, That's you're what, welcome. But the way they're going to position it is just like, we're going to decrease monthly payments by 20%. But then what do you think is going to happen to the prices? Because if everyone can afford it again, it'll push the prices back up. Like it's, it's just this, it's just perpetual. Never ending cycle. Right. So that's, I don't know. Like I, I think there's, there, you know, you, 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 like I think they're smarter in some ways. I'm like, they got to be smart to figure this stuff out. This Who has shown I, I, any smarts? I, but I just think it's, but see, I think the policy, la- serve, you know, the policy serve them as well. That's why. So, so that's the why policy make, serves them I think because they, they understand can get, it. And that's why they don't, uh, they I don't, don't think do they it. understand. I so still, that's kind of you. You think they understand it, but they're going to do, they're going to announce things like that because it'll get them reelected. Yeah. Whereas I think the vast majority of politicians in this country, I think they're probably very good people. I think they're good people. A whole bunch of them. Great people. Maybe not all of them. I don't know. I don't know them personally. Good people, rational actors. <laughs> You but, say good people three times. It's yeah, like you're well, convincing I'm yourself. trying to convince myself. They're good people. I swear. Please let them be good people. But they're good people, but they just don't understand or don't have this context. So because they don't have this context, they don't, you know, they think they're actually helping by making policy changes that would extend amortization, lowering payments, when in effect, that's just going to drive prices further to make the wealth divide even greater. Yeah. There's yeah. some hold on, but that, that's interesting. Hold on. Does it make the wealth divide greater if more people can own assets by changing those rules? I guess in the in the Yeah, because short incomes term, don't keep up. Yeah. But in the short term, those people would get if they, if they get in early enough, right? Okay, yeah. Like if the, the day that, the policy announces yeah. is announced, sure. Like the people that were able that weren't able to afford a property, right? But they were able to buy May twenty twenty. Right after the thing, you know, right when demand started ramping up, yeah, they they would get a benefit of it. But within six months, the market will be jacked yeah. up, or twelve months, it'll be jacked up again. And then they can't. And then can't they afford can't it. afford it because incomes okay. don't keep up. So let's let's reverse this for a second. So what's going to? So you talked about banks not lending. That's one thing. That's a risk to everyone. That's a risk to. to That's prices. our biggest risk. Yeah. So there is a. Well, there's other ones too, like a, a bunch of supply coming on the market would, would change that. Sure, but that takes years. Yeah. A, a credit risk where banks don't lend could be tomorrow. Yeah, that really is. So a big spike in rates, because that's what really caused things in the in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, right? Was interest rates yep. spike. Interest rates and went that's up. When, and that's when it kind of, so that changed affordability. So, if, so, so they went up about 3% in a month. Yeah. So that changed affordability very quickly. People got scared off yeah. and they put their hands in their pockets for a while. Now, so if they did something like that, 
if it's which was you know in some ways is similar to like people not lending it's not the exact same because affordability but in some ways like that if they changed amortizations to make it harder for people to buy a home then that would remove remove demand now that seems like political suicide because you're just then you're like basically going against all the first-time home buyers that you you know so all their votes I i don't think many of them are coming to you so there's that or you able you you increase supply and and the, you know maybe they start getting around to be like okay we actually got to increase some supply here but even if they do that that takes years to your point as well that takes years as well and the supply would have to increase to catch up to our current pace but over the next 10 years the pace of family formations in this area is increasing yeah so, so we almost have to double down on the increase of supply so the biggest risk that we're talking about that we see for us is for the real estate market for the real estate market is some sort of Contagion, yeah, which results in a credit crisis. Say some sort of black swan event, but contagion's a good, yeah, that's probably the, the, the better term to use. Something starts happening in the financial system, it gets kind of creaky, some yeah. cracks form, and then, then you know, is no different than what we saw even at the beginning of COVID and multiple other times is overnight lending rates change. And that gets trouble between banks and they can't settle their, their funds. And then it kind of spreads. But let's play that one out. So that's interesting. So let's play that one out because I like, I like when Greg Foss talks about it because he's like, hey, there was a fund, a pension fund in Quebec that really was at the forefront of some of the subprime crisis in 2007, 2008, because they were a, a pension fund that had some subprime stuff and they were not going to roll over the repurchasing of some of that debt. And I guess somebody there was smart enough to look at it and go, what the hell are we buying? <laughs> this is garbage. Oh, that's and, right. I remember that. And then, and then they didn't roll it over. When they didn't buy the debt, all of a sudden the people selling that debt had to find a new buyer. When there's no new buyer, that starts to introduce some contagion to the market because the credit's not rolling over. There's no new buyers for this debt. The market starts, and then that was like a domino effect that went around the world. And in today's world, it's even more linked than it was then. Exactly. So if we get this credit crisis through some form of contagion where let's say like, all of a sudden, I don't know, some bank in Europe, in Ireland somewhere says, hey, I'm not, you know, I have a credit problem. And, and it can Royal be a relatively bank, small, small bank. But yeah. that is tied to the Royal Bank that has a bigger, you know, problem with that. And then Royal Bank is tied to another bank. And then all of a sudden there's this credit contagion that's rolling through the market. It's why Greg always talks about looking at the credit default swap rates to see what the market and how the market is pricing credit. Because usually that's the leading indicator. If you see those credit default swap rates go up or start spiking up, it's almost like the market giving you the tsunami warning that holy crap a big credit wave is about to hit here and it's going to be ugly that's his like early warning sign Mm -hmm. for for that kind of stuff and he's always talking about buying the insurance before that kind of stuff but if that was to happen think of the policy response from the central banks they can't allow that to happen because it it almost took down the financial system in 2008 so now we have more debt and the the difference between or sorry the spread between the debt and gdp is now four to one it's bigger. So now you can't let it happen. So if that contagion was to happen, which is our number one threat, they're going to have to come at it with more and more money printing, devaluing our currency further, which in dollar terms increases the price of, of hard assets. So there might be an 18 month window where it's like, holy shit's hitting the fan here. Yeah, but the but response you, to the that policy response too. is going to be like, you still want to hold hard assets. And that's why you need cash flow to get yourself through that period. But we believe. And obviously, do, if you're listening to this, do your own research yeah. and, you know, get into things and, and research stuff yourself. Don't listen to two brothers from Mississauga. Yeah, but if you're over leveraged, that if you're leveraged if you're, high at that time in an, in some, let's say you're a bunch of negative cash flow, new construction condos in Toronto, you're leveraged high or you have to close on And you lose your them. job. Let's this, say you yeah, lose your job. This is the other thing about new construction that, that, some, that, that people don't look at as a drawback, and f- for me at least. 
And I get new construction. I get the benefit because if you feel like the asset's going to appreciate and stuff, or even if you don't, but you think it might be appreciated a little bit and you're going to close on it, great. But it ties your hands for a period of time. So in that type of scenario, if you if but you happen to have to try to close on these properties at that time, you kind of put yourself in a pretty bad situation. Or if you've left yourself too far and you don't have a cash flow component, you're your risk your risk level then increases a, a, a chunk. Even if it's even if it's not this huge positive cash flow like where you're generating like a thousand bucks a month off the property or whatever whatever it's it is. enough to pay for itself. But even if it's just break even, and so that way if it goes down, it's you know it's it, it, which which is unlikely in that type of environment because single family like rental properties usually the demand will actually increase in that type of environment. But um, yeah, like it just yeah, I'm just trying to play out all the angles. Raw raw. So we interviewed Rob Minton for the podcast. It'll probably come out somewhere around the time we released this one, probably just after. But he said something interesting that during 2008, when they uh, saw prices come down as fast as they did, they all panicked and made a mistake. What, they they sold? sold and they said they didn't realize that rental demand would increase so much and rents would be so stable if they had just held it would have been the better move. Especially then, because they were refinancing their properties at lower, like the banks were forgiving a percentage of the mortgage. You could then go refinance it at a lower amount that you owed. Your payment could have changed. And yeah, you could have just owned all those properties. So he said, looking back, they should have held, but yeah. everybody's in a panic. If they, He was on the east side of Cleveland property. Some property prices dropped like 60%. Yeah. So you could see how they would panic. But now they're all back up. But those, But then do you know who came in? The financial guys, the hedge funds. The hedge funds then yeah. come in and buy the venture thousands of properties yeah. across the, yeah. the, the North America. And this is the wealth divide. This is why it just, when we, when we just talk about the symptoms, which is the price of real estate, and we don't talk about the problem, which is the dollar or the economy, it's so misleading. And, and the, you know what? I think a lot of times in Canada, it's very easy to get emotionally scarred or make emotional responses based on the price. But when you realize the price is represented in Canadian dollars, which is highly manipulated because the government could put more dollars in the system, you come to realize that the real economy is not represented in dollar terms. The real economy is represented in goods and services. When you're measuring the real economy in a money that can be artificially altered and inflated by a central bank and a government, then the dollar price of goods and services in the economy is not a true reflection of the value of those in the economy. When the goods and services in an economy are represented by a sound money that can't be manipulated, something like a gold maybe, Bitcoin obviously makes more sense. And I'm not saying Bitcoin's everything's going to be no, priced in Bitcoin. I just want Bitcoin. to get through one podcast without you no, saying that word. No, but it's important. Word. It's a swear word. Don't no, say it's it important. Swear word. It's, it's important. Swear word. <laughs> it's important. It's important because when you price things in something that can't be manipulated, it's an honest reflection. The real value in the economy is goods and services. That's the real value. Any excess value that you as an individual or a business represent or bring to the economy that you can't immediately exchange for other things, you're going to save that extra value that you created in a money. If it's in Canadian dollars, it's altered and manipulated. If it's in a sound money, then it's harder to manipulate. It's a truer form or representation of your time and labor. But when in the media, we just look at Canadian home prices and, 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 and report on them, like, wow, look, real estate prices in Toronto are up 20%. This is crazy. They just need to take the extra step and say, wait a second, nothing changed about that home in Barrie, Ontario. It's still the same shingles and foundation. Why don't we look at the source of the problem? Yeah. But that's a whole... That 
so yes, and at that that type of, of things been going on for a while. This this can lead to it. But Nick, I like to hole. obsess about it. <laughs> no, no, I, but I'm just saying. You know what? I, I think that brings up another problem just with media in general. I think in today's world, where everything needs to be so clickbaity to get someone's attention, because we're just bombarded with everything everywhere. There's multiple 24-hour news stations. Like, there's not that much going on in the world that you need a 24-hour news station that you need to know every facet of everything happening in every different area. You know, and I think it's caused, it's 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 amplified the no, the amount the the level. The lack of deep, sorry, the, yeah, it's amplified the lack of deep information that we get. It's caused everything to be just be surface oriented because they got to get the next thing quick, out quick to get people's attention, and 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 it's it's too bad because then you don't. You, I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember. I, I feel like when remember we used to get the Toronto Star growing mm-hmm. up at home, and I feel like when I read the newspaper then I was getting there was always some more lengthy articles or I was getting a little bit more in depth information. Whereas the things that I see now, I feel are very just kind of high level top fluff stuff maybe it's um on topics that i've learned more about so maybe you know i i can go deeper maybe it's not i don't know but i feel like there's just a gap there where there is no one going deep anymore and that's why this type of thing's not looked at so when you talk about a hard money until that type of thinking gets more widespread which it can and who knows when it will or whatever that's the challenge with with implementing something like that or with seeing widespread adoption of it but maybe you know when people get forced to have to look at it because they're seeing asset prices grow the way they are maybe that will will um speed that process up as well and you'll see a a higher uptake in it it'll be interesting yeah you're right you're absolutely right like the whole thing's messed one of the things I think to keep in mind or that's kind of very clear for me is that, you know, when you when you look at the data and that the G4 banks are devaluing the currency by 15.5% compounded over the last 10 years, or if you look at our example of four to one debt to GDP and the GDP has to grow at 12% a year and you know that it's not going to grow at 20, 12% a year. So the way another way to do it is just to stuff 12% more currency into the system. So it looks like it's growing at 12%, but really you've just artificially jammed more currency into the system. And I'm simplifying that, but that's basically what's going on. If you're not increasing your savings, your income, your family's net worth by let's call it 12 to 15% a year, you're ultimately falling behind. You, like, you literally need to be growing your personal net worth, the money in your bank account, whatever number you're tracking for yourself at 12 to 15% a year. And it, that's difficult because if somebody make, made a 10% year uh, you know, return on their RRSPs and they're like, wow, I really killed it. I did 10%. Yeah, they're still falling you're behind. still falling behind. Like you, a 10% return on someone's traditional basket of investments in an RRSP mixed into That's some great. stock, it would be like you would be like jumping up and down, especially in today's world with low interest rates yeah. where they are. Yeah. You'd be like killing it, and you would still be falling behind. And this is why it's sneaky, and it's you know it just no one kind of sees it. It's like a silent yeah. theft. You would be falling behind for now. You wouldn't have in the past, but it no. seems like it's going to be very hard for them to slow down the amount of money growth over over the coming years like in one year it might drop from where it was like you know that the same speed at which is kind of increasing might not continue but over a period of time it's it's like there's no government is elected based on we're going to start cutting all these programs we're going to start can you imagine like it just doesn't work so that's why it's all it's always more and more and more and more and more it just kind of keeps going on that that path until eventually there's some sort of 
not and I don't mean a reset like like this, this kind of complete collapse where I just mean they start valuing it against something else in in you know past money systems that's what they've had to start doing to try to then say it's kind of like a fresh start in one way shape or form right can you imagine a government ran on that like listen hey we're you know what we're going to save we're going to save some money. Yeah. And as a, as a result of our decision to save money. Here's everything we can we do. We can't, you know, teachers, we're going to cut this uh, pension funds yeah. for some, you know, city employees. Ah, sorry, we're going to have to cut some of that. They got a big like, whiteboard and they put up like the, the police budget, the teacher budget. Yeah, the and they just budget, started crossing And they crossed it out, just wrote, start writing lower numbers. So like, okay, this is what we got to do. But if you understand <laughs> then that they're never going to do that, no government is ever going to do that because they control the money, then you can front run this stuff. You can buy good hard assets and you can front run. You can, you can buy, get yourself some sound money, get some, I think, some. I think, I don't know. I'm always the guy that like, you know, I'm always looking like, yeah, what have I missed? What have I missed? But yeah, like th- as long th- th- as you th- don't get yourself into a situation where you're carrying so much debt that if there is a cycle where it really yeah. goes bad, yeah, that no- you can't survive. That's the ultimate yeah. danger. And nothing goes in a straight line. There's ups and downs. Even if, if the trend line is hard up on the debt and that type of stuff as well, there are still ups and downs within it. And a hundred percent. But it's also why we, you know, when we're sharing with Rockstar Inner Circle members about income and we call it the unicorn, it's the income that allows you to survive. Any person that has any wealth that we've ever met might have assets, but they all say that income is kind of like what made them get to a point where they had financial freedom. And then maybe they bought some more speculative assets, but they had a base of income, whether yeah. it was themselves personally, a business, some cash flow from their investments. And, well, and then they're also comfortable making those investments or taking those risks into the investments they go into because they have the income. So the income then allows them to be able more flexibility to do other things because if that thing doesn't work out, well, they still have these income streams coming in so then they can then replenish their funds or do whatever they need to in an easier fashion than they would be able to prior to that. Yeah, Yeah. it's almost like if you want to gauge how prepared you are for the next 10 years, it's how many income streams do you have? Is your income stream tied to one employer and the skills that you have are not marketable in the marketplace? Because if you're at one employer and your skills are very marketable, you can still move around should should there be a problem with that employer. But how marketable are your skills in the current economy? Should always be gauging that. And how many additional streams of income can you introduce into your life, whether it's your, you know, some kind of side hustle that you start that then turns into a real business or three or four smaller side hustles that just yeah. produce streams of income, but you want the streams of income. A hundred percent because then you're not dependent. Like if push comes to shove and you have the, the, the streams of income coming in, how much do you need to then do things you don't want to have to do like or work in some place you have to do or whatever the case to, to be able to make ends meet. Like it's not a big deal. Like it gives you that flexibility when you don't have to worry about that side of things, right? So I've always looked at things, I don't know why, like a long time ago, I looked at things, I think when we were getting into our first um, our first uh, uh, property, uh, sorry, my first house with, with Diana, when we bought our first house, I was looking at the mortgage payment, like, well, I feel pretty comf- comfortable because I can just make, like I can work at the gas station down the street and we could probably make these make the payments, you know, and then I'll do whatever else I need to do to grow beyond that. But I feel pretty comfortable about it because of, because of that. It was weird because we I, I had had multiple investment properties already, but it was the first investment that I was responsible for um, actually taking care of, which taking care of the payment. And I didn't like it. When I was signing the mortgage documents, I was, it was so easy to sign before because other people were paying for it. Now it's me to pay and I don't like it. <laughs> so... Yeah, this doesn't give me freedom. I have to pay this. 
Anyway, all right. Enjoy the vacation, man. Uh, hopefully, I'm joining you there soon. We'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see if I make it. There seems like a lot of hoops to jump through. So that so once I get there, the celebration's on. It's like a 007 episode, man. You got to just like <laughs> circumvent the global political picture on how to escape and get into another country and then get back home. We'll just have to call a Rockstar private jet to come pick us yeah. up. Yeah, oh my gosh, can you imagine? I th- it would be cooler if it was a helicopter, though, that could just like drop you yeah. down on the beach and pick you up on the beach. Yeah, except I'm not a big fan of helicopters. When you fly in no, them, they, yeah, they, they, the way they there, shake yeah, and yeah, stuff. A little, not, yeah, it's a little, yeah. I'm okay, not, so, not a huge fan. Okay, yeah. so we need a plane that can hover Yeah, yeah. and that, then just drop ones. you down. Yeah, 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 those new ones can do that. Yeah. Okay, but that doesn't seem like a good use of money, man. <laughs> That seems like a depreciating Don't asset. Don't worry. No, it'll just be all inflated away anyways. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. So hopefully you enjoyed that episode. And if you are thinking about becoming a Rockstar Inner Circle member, but you're not sure what it's all about, you can visit rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. You'll get a list of all the magical benefits outlined for you there. You can always email members at rockstarbrokerage.com to get in touch with the membership team here. And that's it. Hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed that chat as much as we did. Until next time, your life, your terms.